When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Carrie Fisher looks into a cafeteria. The walls are a dirty yellow, and the air's heavy with nicotine, stale sandwiches, and deep belly laughs. She doesn't know anyone here, not really, but everyone knows her. She's 19, a girl born into celebrity. She edges through the crowd and smiles, feigns delight. She barely recognises the faces and she definitely doesn't remember the names, but she wants to be liked. She feels like she has to prove herself, to prove she deserves the role. She says hello to everyone, the electricians, the sound guys, the set builders. She's earnest, eager and... She's the only woman in the room. They all greet her back. But is it with a smile or a smirk? Are they friendly or predatory? It's hard for Carrie to know. Things get lost in translation. They slip through the age gap between her and these middle-aged men. Their North London banter sounds strange to her Beverly Hills ears. They've been brought together for a birthday party, the boss's birthday party. George Lucas is turning 32. He's the director of the film they're all working on. It's a quirky little project for a cash-strapped company, a mixed-up mess of Western and science fiction. The budget's tight. Most of it's going to be filmed here in Elstree Studios. So this party's a chance to blow out, let off steam. The bar's free, the measures are generous, and the crew are getting louder and drunker. Not Carrie, though. Not at first. You see, booze does bad things for her. She gets sick quick. She stumbles and slurs. But the goading and coaxing convinces her. Come on, just one, they say. Go on, treat yourself. And Carrie wants to be liked. More than she wants to be wise. She asks for an amaretto and coke. She gets something stronger. She tells stories, cracks jokes, laughs long and loud, and the crew laugh with her, or at least she thinks they do, for a while. But actually, as time goes on, are they laughing at her? Carrie's not too sure, and she's not too well either. She stumbles out a fire door and sucks in the damp air. Some guys follow. She certainly can't remember their names now. They tell her they know another place, an after-party. And then she hears a voice she does recognise. A deep, rich voice cutting through the chatter. It says, Carrie's had enough. She needs to go home. Her evening's over. It's Harrison Ford. He hails a cab and slides her onto the back seat. And then he joins her. Everyone knows Carrie, or at least they think they do. They see a good-looking girl leading a pampered life, 
a teenager unprepared for the adult world. But they make the same mistake the villains in the film do, the ones who see her as a pretty face and an empty head. They're underestimating Carrie. Carrie's not to be taken advantage of. Carrie won't be owned. Carrie won't be cowed. Carrie will have her say. Even at her birth, Carrie's upstaged by her parents. As she takes her first breath, the doctors are looking somewhere else. They compliment Debbie on how peaceful and serene she's been through the birth. They leave pauses, hoping for a smile or a kind word in exchange. They all know Debbie. She's the star of Singing in the Rain, Gene Kelly's love interest in the biggest hit of Hollywood's musical era. The nurses are busy too, Carrie's father has fainted. He's called Eddie. He's a hit parade heartthrob, and right now, his kind eyes are rolled back and his mop of black hair is draped across the floor. The nurses rush to help him, wiping his brow and whispering reassuringly in his ear. And all this time, Carrie's swaddled in warm white towels, bellowing, but barely seen. This is what Carrie writes about her birth. When I arrived, I was virtually unattended, and I've been trying to make up for that fact ever since. For the Fishers, family life is just a brief pause before show business resumes. It's the backstage, where mistakes are made. All the insecurities and imperfections happen at home. Nerves fray and tempers flare, Eddie gets high on amphetamines, he gets furious as the horse he's backed loses him another fortune. But then, as Carrie watches, Debbie and Eddie swan into the spotlight, composed, cool, at ease, putting on an act as easily as an evening gown. Most evenings, Carrie watches her mother get ready. She sees her preening eyelashes, primping hair, powdering every inch of exposed skin. She sees the transformation. From the girl who grew up in a shack in Texas to a woman who lights up the glitziest of Hollywood parties. And Carrie thinks, that'll be her someday. And so Carrie waits. She waits for some magic to make her over, just like a mum. But it never does. And she decides she'd better develop something else. She thinks, if she's not going to be pretty, maybe she could be funny or smart. So she ploughs through piles of books, Epic tales with countless characters and fitting endings, where justice is served and dues are paid. She reads Dickens and Dostoevsky, and she writes journals, poems, letters. It's her escape, one she needs. But a real escape? That won't come until she's 17. She's in Vegas now, has been for two years. She's wearing sequins and a fixed smile another face in the chorus line behind her mother. She's part of the backdrop to Debbie's one-woman act, a song-dance joke show that leaves little room for anyone else to shine. But Carrie spotted a chance to make her own life, to get away from the spotlight and escape the pressure. She tells Debbie about a drama course in London. She talks of the stage and Shakespeare so different to her parents' stardom. So Debbie signs the cheque and Carrie crosses the Atlantic and changes her life forever. 
At first, there's so much freedom. From her parents, from the public, from a scrutiny that wouldn't let up. In London, the daughter of Debbie Reynolds doesn't mean a thing. So she sharpens addiction, slips into new accents, tries to unlock new emotions on her course and new experiences in her downtime. She sips pints and plays pool. Then, one Christmas, she reads for a part. A little lo-fi movie thing filmed just up the train line in North London. Her friends joke that the title, Star Wars, sounds like it's about her parents, about Debbie, Eddie, and the wreckage of their marriage. But Star Wars is no small thing. Star Wars is serious business. We'll get back to that after this short break. Hello, I'm Alan Cumming. And I have a new podcast called Alan Cummings Shelves. You see, I have quite a few shelves in my house that are sort of a museum of my life. In each episode, I'm going to take an item off my shelves, tell you why it's there in the first place, then start to talk about my memories of it. And then I chat with a friend who's involved in those memories. I've spoken to Ian McKellen about a hemp bracelet that he bought me on a nudist beach we visited together, Cindy Lauper about a pair of white leather gloves I wore on Broadway, and you even get to hear Jerry Halliwell talk about my Spice Girls lunchbox, and that is not a euphemism. I have some really amazing guests coming on to chat, so I just hope you will join me, and all you have to do to do that is to search for Alan Cummings Shelves, wherever you get your podcasts from. See you soon. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Carrie sees herself everywhere now, as a shampoo bottle, as a sweet dispenser, on a watch face, in a board game, as a figurine, everywhere. Always with those pigtails curled up around her head. Because Star Wars is big, and not just at the box office. The director, George Lucas, cuts a deal as the film's being finished. Instead of taking a higher salary, he takes more control over sequels, storylines, and merchandising rights. The studio thinks they've saved themselves a couple hundred thousand dollars, but George is making billions. Normally, merchandising is a small studio sweetener, a little bump to the bottom line, nothing more. But George has a different vision, a Star Wars branded existence. From breakfast to bedtime, a child can take their favorite film with them. It changes Hollywood's business model. It makes him a fortune but it makes Carrie nothing. In fact, 
She jokes she has to pay George every time she looks in the mirror because he cashes in on her likeness so much. Carrie sees Leia everywhere, but she never knows where she will find Carrie. Because she's split between two personalities, two polar opposites. She nicknames them. One is Rollicking Roy, a high-rolling, high-living party animal. The other is Sediment Pam. Pam sinks quietly into misery and loneliness. So it's Roy on the set of the Star Wars sequel, Empire Strikes Back. It's Roy who racks out a line of cocaine in an underground bunker on a faraway ice planet. It's Roy who sniffs long and deep and spits out thoughts as fast as her mind can generate them. And it's Roy who books airplane tickets on a whim, buys designer clothes in every colour and sleeps with a different man every night. That's Roy. But then Pam can seize the wheel. And when she does, she sends Carrie into slow motion. Suddenly, everything feels insurmountable. Her energy leaks away. Her insecurities yawn wide. Days stretch out endless and useless before her. Pam, Carrie explains, stands for piss and moan. And when a depressive episode hits, Carrie can't do much else. She tweaks her mood with drugs, the legal and illicit stuff. She pops up to 30 prescription painkillers a day to dampen down the barrage of thoughts and urges. And she takes LSD for the same reason. When she's high on acid, that internal monologue spirals into shapes and colours. Carrie has hallucinations instead of regrets, and that's slightly better. She barrels through life, burns through relationships. That teenage affair with Harrison Ford, the one that starts in the back of that London cab, it's long over. Now she dates, marries, divorces and dates again singer-songwriter Paul Simon. A doomed dive of a relationship, their mutual addictions eventually breaking apart the bonds. Carrie's getting a reputation, on screen and off. She struggles to escape Leia. A role like that marks you. And some days, she struggles to get up at all. But quietly, in the down moments, and the manic ones as well, she writes. The desire's still there. As a teenager, it was an escape from Debbie, Eddie, and the swirl of celebrity. And now, it exerts control. It sorts the madness of her inner life and outer existence. It's a record of the drugs that support her one minute and swipe the rug from under her the next. And it's also brilliant. There's no sheen, no filter, no platitudes. She's brutally honest and bracingly funny. She punctures egos and reveals her own weaknesses. It's stylish and clever. And for those unable to see beyond the innocent teenager or the space princess, it's totally unexpected. Her debut novel? It's a bestseller from out the blue. It's the tale of an actress who's a recovering addict and her relationship with her disapproving mother. Carrie doesn't bother to hide that it's based on her. And she shares more. She shares her mental health diagnosis that she's got bipolar disorder. She puts it out there when there is a very unfriendly place, an era when weakness is exploited, greed is good, 
and sharing stories of mental health just isn't done. But Carrie speaks about it without shame and with humour, as something that's happening to her but could just as easily happen to you. She doesn't whisper about her mental health. She doesn't give it a mystique it doesn't deserve. She tells it straight. She says, I'm mentally ill. I can say that. I'm not ashamed of that. I survived that. I'm still surviving it. But bring it on. Better me than you. There's something Harrison says to Carrie back in 1976 at the end of their affair, when she's heading for her next adventure and he's going back to his wife and family life. Carrie says something self-deprecating about her lack of education, her lack of life experience. Harrison fixes her with a look and says, You think you're less than you are. You're a smart hick. You have the eyes of a doe and the balls of a samurai. After their three months together, he knows not to underestimate her anymore. Carrie sits in a convention centre, High, echoing ceilings, dark strip lighting, a slight smell of bleach. In front of her is a pile of photos. They're all the same, her, 30 years before. The white, billowy dress, a black laser pistol slung over her shoulder, and her hair wrapped over her ears, always the hair. In front of her is a queue of expectant faces, and in her hand is a black marker pen. Carrie was paid well for Star Wars, but she was paid once. None of the fringe benefits or rolling royalties that George Lucas got. And she burned through that money a long time ago too. So she cashes in the slow way, at meet and greets, picture by signed picture, selfie by forced selfie, conference hall by conference hall, around America, around the world. Carrie says goodbye to another happy customer and looks up for her next. She locks eyes with a small girl, one who was drawn to Star Wars later, a new generation of fans hooked by a 21st century trend for rebooting old classics. The little girl is dressed in a white loose dress. She has little buns pinned to her own hair, and she's in tears. She turns to her mother, and this is what she shouts through sobs. I don't want the old one. Carrie smiles with grace and makes a mental note. It'll be a good anecdote for a book. When she appears in a new Star Wars film, 38 years after her first, people seem surprised her hair's grey and her figure's fuller. But Carrie doesn't float through decades like Hollywood demands. She won't stay untouched by time, nipped, tucked, with the creases filled and the fat sucked out. Carrie's life is too messy, too busy, too grounded for that. She shakes off slurs on social media. She tells them what she sees in the mirror, what she sees from 40 years in the industry. My body is my brain bag, she says. It hauls me around to those places and in front of faces where there's something to say or see. Youth and beauty are not accomplishments. They're the temporary happy byproducts of time or DNA. 
Don't hold your breath for either. It's December 2016 and she's in London, filming a sitcom. The writers are strict, insisting everyone sticks hard to the script. That is, everyone except Carrie. She's allowed to ad-lib. To launch into biting monologues or crack whip-smart one-liners, because they know her wit is precious and precise, something they can't master for her in the writer's room. They rap on the final day's shooting, just in time for Christmas. Back in Los Angeles, Carrie's mother, Debbie, has the table set and the menu planned. Before she leaves, Carrie invites her co-star over for a meal. She invites a writer too, Salman Rushdie. He's a Booker Prize winner, a deep thinker. But there's also a two and a half million pound bounty on his head, started by Iran's supreme leader in the 80s. It's the price he's paid for a book that's accused of blasphemy. Carrie doesn't care about that. She knows he can laugh at himself. She hands out presents over the meal. She gives her co-star an antique cocktail stick holder. It's thoughtful, elegant, classy. And what does she give Salman? A pair of chocolate breasts. The next morning, she boards a flight at Heathrow Airport. She turns left into first class and heads home to Los Angeles. With her French bulldog Gary on the seat next to her, she sleeps for most of the flight. She's tired. She's worked hard in London. She's played hard too. Heroin and MDMA are still in her system. As she flies over the Atlantic, they float through her bloodstream. They squeeze through arteries. 15 minutes before landing, she wakes with a start. She vomits and gasps. She can't breathe. She's having a heart attack. A nurse on the flight rushes forward to pump her chest and try mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, the kiss of life. As soon as they land, a fire truck screeches onto the runway to meet the plane and carries rush to hospital. For three days, the world hears nothing from inside the ward as Carrie teeters between life and death. But then, finally, she slips away. Across town, a table's laid. It has been for weeks. Sparkling silver cutlery, stark white plates, wine glasses. It's ready for Christmas. A party with three generations and all the trimmings. But Christmas Day has passed, and the room lies silent. It's Debbie's home and one of the places is set for Carrie. Debbie can't bring herself to serve the meal or to put away the plates. She's in shock, in grief. She's trapped in time, the future drained of colour, the past fading from her memory. She tells her son of the ache, the painful longing. Debbie says this, I miss her so much. I want to be with Carrie. And just a few hours later, her body follows where her mind points. Debbie suffers a stroke. She dies, aged 84, just a day after her daughter.
The tributes come thick and fast, not for the princess, but the person who steadily grew out of that shadow. Carrie's daughter, Billy Lord, says her life and death should be an inspiration to seek help and fight for more. Harrison Ford calls her brilliant, original, funny, and emotionally fearless. He says, she lived her life bravely. Her co-star, Mark Hamill, quotes a bit of Star Wars dialogue. He says, no one's ever really gone. Carrie would have laughed. All too sentimental, all too mushy. But it's all too accurate, because Carrie keeps on making us laugh. On a clear January day, a blurry camera phone shot appears on social media. It's from a crematorium and Carrie's funeral. Carrie's brother Todd is dressed in black. He's cradling Carrie's ashes. But they're not in what you'd expect. They're in a green and yellow capsule. People look once, twice, zoom in. What is that? Todd explains to a reporter that it's a giant Prozac pill. Carrie bought it a few years ago. He says she loved it. They couldn't find anything else appropriate to put her in. Carrie would like it. And Carrie keeps making us think too. A couple of weeks later, the day after President Trump's inauguration, nearly half a million people march on Washington. Another four million are doing the same thing across the United States, more around the world. It's the first women's march. There are signs, homemade, from the heart. Ones that tickle a funny bone while landing a punch right on the chin. And there's one that keeps cropping up. They're all a bit different. Some are drawn by hand, some are repurposed out of an old poster. Some are covered in angry scrolls, others in playful bubble writing. But the image is always the same. It's Carrie. It's Leia. The white dress, the hair, and the same phrase. A woman's place is in the resistance. No one's underestimating Carrie now. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Emma Clark. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read from Carrie Fisher's excellent books, Wishful Drinking and The Princess Diarist, as well as Sheila Weller's Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge. We also read from the archives of Los Angeles Magazine, National Geographic, The Guardian, and the LA Times. The music we used is from our partners BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, try our episodes about Heath Ledger or Brittany Murphy. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey Hey there. there, I'm Hannah and I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.